1: Thank you for listening to this Podcast One Sportsnet production, available on Apple Podcasts and Podcast One.
2: Welcome to Real Jam Radio. I'm Daniel, your host, and so happy to have you with us for this episode. I was kind of at a loss at certain moments during this week because we're in the middle of the NBA finals and I was debating, do I want to do a finals podcast? Do I want to do something on the offseason? Do I want to go in a completely different direction? Do I want to do, you know, because I already did the three, the three lottery winners podcast, which I really enjoyed. So person to bridge all those gaps and talk about it is Tim Bontemps, friend of the Washington Post. And we had a really fun conversation. We went for the first like 35 minutes or so are on the finals. So different wrinkles, different angles. I was not in Cleveland. He was. So we also had that perspective difference between the two of us. And then we get into a couple of the big offseason storylines that we were each thinking about. One is the Boston Celtics and what they're what they could be doing, considering their significant assets and where the team was. And also the reporting that came out this week about LeBron James considering maybe going to L.A. And then the banana boat and all that kind of stuff, because Tim and I can't help ourselves. It's something we enjoy thinking about. It's something we enjoy talking about. And this week's episode is brought to you by Blue Apron the Fantastic Food Delivery Service, you can go to blueapron.com slash real GM and you can get three meals for free plus free shipping on your first order. And ZipRecruiter. ZipRecruiter is a great way to apply for a job, but in this way it's it's a great way to get employees. So you can go to ziprecruiter.com sportsfan and you can post jobs for free. Conversation runs a little bit over an hour. I hope you enjoy it. Thanks so much for coming on. Anytime, Danny. We're in between games four and five of the NBA Finals, and I've been thinking a lot about this series kind of during this off weekend, and as much as it's not something that I think you and I needed to be reminded of, I think that one of the benefits of game four, not only the Cavs winning, but the way that they won, was this reminder of how special Cleveland's collection of talent is.
1: Yeah, I mean, look, when you have LeBron James on your team, you know, one of, you know, if not the greatest player of all time, one of the, the handful of them, uh, you know, that that's enough to have you stay competitive in a series against any team, you know, even a team with the amount of talent that Golden State has. And while Kyrie Irving, you know, I, I don't think is as good as any of the four stars that the Warriors have in a vacuum in terms of which player I think is a better player. Uh, the things he is good at specifically um, are a perfect compliment to LeBron. And, you know, that, that one-two punch, you know, has proved to be a pretty, pretty devastatingly effective one for, for Cleveland. And, you know, you saw that in game three. You saw that in game four. Um, you saw that in the final three games of the series last year. And, you know, it's, it, that's the thing that is going to be fascinating to watch play out here is, uh, you know, can, can Cleveland do that again in game five on the road? Uh, here at here in San Francisco or in Oakland I should say where they've been uh, they've been dropped all three times they played here this year or you know or, or is it going to go the way those first three games have and the Warriors are going to be able to ride their home crowd to uh, to finally finish off a three one lead
2: something else that ties in with that which I find fascinating is that Cleveland does so much of their damage. Not necessarily through isolation, but the seams that are created are through those sorts of plays. Like Kyrie can break guys down one-on-one, LeBron is just a monster at everything, really, in that sort of a way. And that game works better in the playoffs because all of the stuff that happens off ball doesn't get called as much, and the stuff on ball always does because refs can't help themselves. I'm not saying they shouldn't call the on ball stuff. And so what Cleveland has done is, I don't think this is by design, but their approach just it, it doesn't dissipate in the same way and yet they are actively and enthusiastically using that disparity to their advantage when they're defending the Warriors. Yeah I mean
1: if you go back to, to last last year right when the Warriors lost to the Cavs you know there were a lot of mitigating factors there right staff was less than 100 percent Andrew both got hurt uh, Harrison Barnes hit a shot Andre Iguodala his back was messed up uh Jeremiah Green got suspended for game five but but what but what was the thing that kind of hung over all that as a positive from the Cleveland Sun, right? It was that they had two guys, in LeBron James and Kyrie Irving, who could go get a bucket at any time and anybody. And you know, in the playoffs, you know, you need guys that could go get buckets. I mean, it's you know, for all the talk that there is about ball movement and, and intricate offenses and space in the court, and you know, all the all the different uh, all the different combinations of, of things that have made you know, really took the game in a lot of different directions now and made, make it so fun to watch. You know, when you're, when you're talking about the playoffs and you're talking about, uh, you know, getting down here to the, to the bitter end and you've got two incredible teams like this playing against each other, you know, a lot of times the game reverts back to its, to its simplest form. And, and in, in, in this case, it's, you know, it's a matter of who can go out and, and get the buckets necessary to, to, uh, to, to get, to get victories. and, You know, if you're looking at this from, uh, you're looking at this series from that standpoint, you know, that was a big part of why the Warriors were so hell-bent on getting Kevin Durant was to have a guy that could go get them buckets. And, you know, he did that in game three at the end of the game, get that pull-up three to to win game three. And, you know, Kyrie Irving and LeBron really led the charge to allow Cleveland to do that in game four and and bring the series back here for a game five tomorrow night.
2: And while I know you intended this in subtext, I want to bring it up into text, which is the idea of being able to get buckets against elite defense. And that's a big separation that we see in the playoffs. I pick on him too much, but I think the great encapsulation of this is DeMar DeRozan. DeMar DeRozan gets buckets in the regular season, gets buckets against the average NBA team without a problem. He is an all-star for that reason. But it just so happens, through strange coincidence, that the best teams in the NBA often have the best perimeter defenders. And so the players like Kyrie, like LeBron, like Kevin Durant, who can score even against those guys are are a really special class and need to be appreciated as such.
1: Yeah, that's why DeMar DeRozan is an all-star and those guys are hall of famers, right? I mean, that's the that's the difference. Like you can have you can be DeMar DeRozan who's a really good player, has developed into a far better player than I think either of us ever thought he was going to be. Um, better than a lot of people thought he was going to be. I mean, remember when he got a four-year, $40 million extension off his rookie deal by Brian Colangelo and it got laughed at and that quickly became a really good contract because DeMar worked his tail off and became a really, really good player. But, you know, like you said, there's a difference between guys that can that could score against, you know, average to good defenses and guys that can score against any defense. And those three guys you're talking about in this series, and, and Seth Curry, when he's healthy, factors into that too. But, you know, it's really those other three guys, you know, they, they do, they do things that, that few, if any other players can do. And that's what makes them all special players.
2: So I've made some hay over the last couple of days, you've been in Cleveland about the idea that Basically, I've articulated it as Steve Kerr's conservatism, and you could call it that, you can call it a lot of different things, but I think that he has this approach where, you know, he wants to dance with the persons, with the people who brought them there, and that is not only in terms of personnel, but also in terms of system, and I think that the, the Warriors would not be where they are without him. I make no bones about that. I think he's the second or well, it best coaches gets complicated, but he's one of the best coaches in the league. I'll put it that way and is essential for what they've done. But what's frustrating sometimes with the Warriors is that they they're pretty devoted to this, even though they can do the more basic stuff. And at this point in the year, unlike in April or much less in November, that more basic stuff can work better just because the officials are actually going to call stuff.
1: Steve Kerr is a lot like the two guys who taught him more about basketball than anybody else, Bill Jackson and Greg Popovich, in that those guys all have one common thread, which is that they all believe in playing basketball a certain way, and they don't believe in changing that for anything or anyone. And I think that, that the way Steve approaches, this is a really good example. Like you're right. Like, you know, this is the same guy that was throwing different guys in the game in game seven. And this is the last year. And this is the same guy that, you know, isn't, isn't really willing to just be like, yeah, let's just run Seth Curry pick and rolls all day. Or let's go to the depth lineup for large stretches of the game. And I think it's because he believes in kind of adhering to a certain set of philosophies about how things should go and how the game should be played. And, You know, as he, as he believes that. Um, you know, it, it kind of dictates the way that he approaches how he coaches the game, right? And, you know, I, I think that that comes up time and again. And it's also why I said a lot of times while Mike Brown was a coach, I didn't think that Mike Brown was really going to hurt the Warriors because he was probably going to be more willing to go to the whip on their star guys in a way that Steve probably wasn't. And, you know, I, I, I think the Warriors are better off with Steve Kerr as a coach. I think that they're probably going to win game five tomorrow, close the series out in five as I thought they would before the series started, but you know it's uh you know every every there's nobody that's perfect i guess is the way i would put it and like greg Popovich, I, I think you can look at i think you can look at steve and see that you know his blind spot is probably being a little too dogmatic in believing that the way he wants to do things is the is the way that they should do things and they shouldn't really adjust from it until you know, the very end. And, you know, the, the Warriors have made adjustments in the past, you know, putting Andre Godala in the starting lineup for Andrew Bogan in games, you know, the end of the, the 2015 finals, putting, uh putting Bogan on Tony Allen in, um in the series against the Memphis Grizzlies that year too. I mean, he's done some stuff that's really out of the box and unconventional that, that people didn't expect, but, you know, far more often, you know, he, he's going to stick to what he believes in. And I, and I, I know this, kind of falls into part of your philosophy but you know I don't think it's a coincidence that those changes come when his team is losing in the series I mean remember last year you know in that Spurs Thunder series how long, I mean I covered that whole series it was just going when are the Spurs going to go small and they didn't go small until the second half of game six when they were down 25 and they still almost came back in that game but it, you just kind of went well, like where was this the whole time and you know I think that's again that's why to me watching Steve is really a reflection of of watching Phil and Pop in that those guys all believe in what they believe in, and they're going to stick to it really no matter what.
2: I hadn't thought of this until now, but there's another connection with that, which is the idea of the year-to-year part. So you just talked about how the Spurs were reluctant to go small until too late. The Warriors, Won a championship with Andre Iguodala in the starting lineup, Draymond at center. The next year when they faced Cleveland, they didn't go back to that same lineup until things went haywire. And they were still ahead in the series, but it was, you know, when Bogut got hurt, when Draymond was suspended, those sorts of things. They didn't go to it really until that point. And so it ties in with the same thing of we're go- we're going to go to our thing and the new information like I- it's so it's so interesting because people often think about like oh oh you're being critical of Curry means you think he's not a good coach or anything like that no far far from it nobody is perfect and what he what he is good at is far more important than what he is bad at it's just that what he is bad at Comes into focus because he is good at every, he is good at many other things and gets to coach elite talent. So he gets to be at this stage. If Kerr was coaching a different team that never made it to the playoffs, we'd never have this conversation. So it's a good problem to have, but you know, you just have to deal with it. But the time part of it, I think, is interesting too, because the Spurs didn't really, it took them a while to go small this year as well. Less, less time, but yeah, and I so. wouldn't even say that it's. St-
1: yeah, I wouldn't even say I wouldn't even say that it's something Steve is bad at. I, I think it's just that this is his philosophy. I mean, some people are willing to junk things up and, and try a lot of different stuff, right? Uh, you know, Rick Carlisle's a good example of that. Phil, Eric is a pretty good example of that. Those are guys that are are like they're, they're kind of constantly tinkering. People like Pop and Phil and and Steve are not. That's not the way those guys operate. They believe in you have a system, and if you play within that system, good things are going to happen right? Like, it's just, it, it's, I, I just think it's a philosophical thing. Um, and, I, you know, I, I, it certainly led Steve to get criticized. I mean, I, you know, I criticize him plenty for playing guys like Preston Azili and Aaron Anderson Berger at the end of the end of that series last year. And, uh, you know, he, um, you know, he, he hasn't really gone to the death lineup that much. And, you know, stuff like that, that, that you could look at and say, this is, this is a problem for this team. But I also think, you know, just looking at it that I, I don't, I think, I think a lot of times we're too quick to, to say that, that this coach is making the wrong decision on some of these lineup stuff. And we don't have all the information as to why they are, are not making them. I think the better way to look at it is that, you know, for a guy like Steve, it's pretty clear his philosophy to your point is to, you know, say, Hey, we've got a great team. We've won a boatload of games playing a certain way and we're going to play that way until we don't have until we absolutely can anymore and why i think that you know i think conservatism is kind of a a funny way to put it given his political beliefs but i I think it is i think it is a um i think it is kind of a good way to describe the way he he is coaching this team and i I do think you know in some senses I, i think in in some ways you can look at it as trying to give confidence to his team right and that you know i I don't. I think if, if you if you just say, "Look, we're going to be fine if we keep doing what we're doing." I think you know you guys could see that as a, "Hey, you know what? We're we are going to be fine because we're this is what we've done all year. We're going to keep doing it. We're going to win." Um, you know, you can look at it the other way and say, you know, at some point you've got to look at the situation, realize you got to change things, but um you know but i i i I, it it is a really interesting to me it's a it's much more of a philosophical discussion than a right or wrong discussion and and it will be fascinating you know especially if let's say the warriors do somehow lose game five you know then then that philosophical discussion is going to really start getting louder
2: right and it's it's a feature not a bug for kerr exactly and that's that's the the whole idea i mean you can see it different ways but I think that's an important distinction to make. And the other test that's going to happen, probably not with the Warriors for a couple of years, but it will happen with the Spurs maybe as soon as next year is, how does that change if their teams are less talented relative to their opposition? Like, I think that's why the OKC series was so compelling for me. Both the Warriors one and the Spurs one, actually, back-to-back, was I thought that was one of the few times in, moder- in the modern run that the Spurs have been the less talented team. I mean, that Thunder, team- that Thunder squad was ridiculous and they were also very well suited because of how athletic they were. And so it's easier to do the... I'm going to stick with what brought us here when you're better than everyone else. And I I think, you know, that's part of the of what attracts those guys to your team and helps make you better. And both Kerr and Popovich deserve a ton of credit for developing talent that otherwise would not have been a big part of it. I mean, think about JaVale McGee, Danny Green for the Spurs, guys like that, that were functionally on on the scrap heap at some point in their career and were found a better role, found, you know, a, a way to get into it with their team. And now that team is reaping the benefit of it.
1: Yeah, no, I mean look, I think, you know, I think if I think if Steve came into the series thinking he was an underdog, right? He would probably coach the series a lot differently than, than if he thinks he's actually the favorite, like I'm sure that he does. Right. I mean, I, think that's kind of, I think that's kind of human nature. Um, uh, I think that, uh, I think that the way you, the way you look at it, you know, it's, that um, it's, it's, it's that it, it, you have to look at it through the context of whether or not these guys are, are, are on the team that's expected to win. I think, you know, you kind of saw in, in the last in the the series against the the Warriors. I think I think the uh, I think the Spurs are gonna be willing to try a lot more different stuff before um, Kawhi Leonard got hurt. Uh, obviously things changed a little bit after that. But you know, I think you know, when, when teams like that are down and they, they they're kind of in a well, you know, our backs are against the wall, let's just try stuff situation. Um i think that they're uh i i think that they're more willing to to try stuff as opposed to when you're the favorite you know i think it's like a lot of situations i mean you can you know in a weird way you could kind of go back to the the presidential election right where the democrat the democratic candidate believed she was the favorite and so she kind of adhered to uh what she thought was the safest path to winning and that wound up not working um and you can you can criticize you can certainly criticize the approach you can understand where the approach came from. And I think, I think the same thing applies here where the Warriors look at the series and say, Hey, we're the better team. We've dominated this matchup for most of the season, uh, playing a certain way. And there's no reason right now to change it. And, you know, tomorrow, you know, they look, they've got the series on their racket. It's three, one, they're at home. Everybody's healthy. It's nothing like last year. And now they have to, uh, they have to try to go out there and get the job done.
2: I can't believe you're going to bait me into talking about politics, but you hit exactly the right button. And so what I'm going to say is my overall philosophy with everything really is try to get every advantage you can. That's why you've referred to me before as a basketball anarchist. And part of the reason for that is just because I'm so I'm so pragmatic that that's the way that I do it. However, it is very important to note that that is much easier to advocate for from press row or from your couch or from your, the, the chair that I'm sitting on talking to you right now than it is when you're the coach of the team. Having a cohesive philosophy works In that setting. And so it's, I I completely understand why, why Kerr is the way it is, which is why it's so interesting for me because like we, he and I line up on so many things, but like this one part, which is central to basically to his identity as a coach. And then I think to my identity as an analyst, we disagree on.
1: Yeah. No. Exactly. And I, I think you know that that is where that's where the divide comes in. And like I said, I I totally understand why people look at them and and ask the questions that they do. Right? Like, why don't they go to the death Planet more? Why don't they do? Uh, a lot of different stuff more than they do but i I also think that you know a lot of times with a lot of those kind of dis- decisions that are made we don't have all the information right uh, we don't we don't know uh, we don't know if they have talked to their medical people and decided that draymond can only play. X number of minutes at at center or his body's going to wear out, right? Like we just don't know that kind of stuff. So I'm with you. uh, I'm with you on a lot of the things in terms of like the game to game, like why is this being done? But I I do think we have to remember that in a lot of these situations, we don't have necessarily all of the information to know why, why decisions are being made and, and what the calculus is, because, you know, look, obviously the Warriors have a lot of smart people, including Steve. And, they don't want to lose these games. So, I mean, I'm sure if, if all of the data was telling them, look, if we could play Draymond 40 minutes a center, we're going to win, it's hard for me to believe they just would ignore it and say, nah, we're not going to do it. So, it um, it is it is, uh, it is an interesting tug of war. And like I said, you know, tomorrow is the great test. If they, if they come out and win this game tomorrow and close out this series, then... You know, a lot of this stuff will be moved. But if if for some reason they allow this to slip and things start to get a little dicey, you know, then all of a sudden a lot of, you know, everything you said and that the Warriors have been criticized for since going up 3-1 last year is going to get a heck of a lot louder and it's going to make for a really, really interesting week.
2: I want to get into that in a second, but one point I want to make before we do is the best example for me of the what we don't know is Andre Woodall's knee, because there is a very real possibility that the reason he's only playing 21 minutes is because the medical staff doesn't think he should play more than that. It's impossible for us to know because nobody's ever going to give us an honest answer at this point, but it's another piece where there is there is there isn't just a divide between what we have and what they have, and I don't want to necessarily give deference, but I think you have to acknowledge that there are more elements in play than that we can ever know yeah i
1: just i just think that i just think that is part of uh i think that's just part of understanding the role we're in right like you have to make you have to make you have to make uh you have to look at the situation and make judgments on what's happening when you don't when you when you try to have as much information as you can but but you don't have all of it and, you know, we don't know what, just like last year, nobody, everybody kind of knew that Seth Curry wasn't hundred percent, but nobody quite knew what degree to what degree he was healthy. Um, I, I think that, you know, the same kind of stuff can be applied to Iguadala now. Like he, I don't think he is. So injured that he can't play, uh, and you've seen in moments he's had bursts of athleticism where he's looked like himself. But then you, you see other moments where he isn't playing that much, where he's kind of limited into shorter stints or he, he sits for halves, and you do kind of wonder what what the state of his body is. And you know, to me, it, it's hard to. It's hard to look at how this has played out and not think that he's got some kind of ailment holding him back, whether it's the knee or a combination of the knee and other things because, you know, his role has been, you know, stunted at times and he, he doesn't, he doesn't look to have the same kind of
2: burst that, that he
1: has in the past.
2: Tim and I have a little bit more to discuss on the NBA Finals, but I want to take a quick moment to tell you about Blue Apron. Blue Apron is an amazing food delivery service that I have heartily enjoyed over the past year and a half, something like that, since I started using it. The Most recent thing I had that was great was curry spiced cod and summer squash. I've said before that their seafood is really, really good. It's done under the, uh, the guidelines of the Monterey Bay Aquarium Seafood Watch, so it's very sustainable. It's great quality as well. It tastes great. And so it was that cod and summer squash also with uh, garlic naan and some rice. And I thought it was a really good combination and a great example of what makes Blue Apron so worthwhile, which is high quality ingredients put in a way that is both... Easy to cook and tastes great. And so, really, whatever approach is important to you, if you want to eat good food, Blue Apron is a great way to do it. If you want to build cooking confidence, you can do that through Blue Apron. And if you want to try something maybe that you've never done before, I, when I started Blue Apron, I was not the most comfortable cooking fish. It's not necessarily in my wheelhouse, unless it's as good as Blue Apron's in terms of eating. So, I don't cook it as much. And I've gotten much more comfortable. And also, that has made me more open to eating it because when I cook it better, I, I, I want to eat it more. And so, it all ties in together. And Blueprint is also great because you can try it out, see what works for you. So the way it works is you go to blueprint.com/slash/realgm. Just like Real Jam Radio, just like the show. And you can get up to three meals for free on your first purchase. And you hopefully will enjoy it as much as I do. It's something that has become a key element of the weeks that I can do it during the playoffs. It has been less frequent and I have missed it, but it is a wonderful use of time. It is something enjoyable. And depending on what size meal you get, there is no food waste within it. But sometimes what's nice is to get, you know, like the four person one, even if you're maybe it's just you and one other person, then you have something for a future day. But it's great because you. Have these ingredients? They're portioned out. You don't have to worry about going to the store and buying it in a larger quantity or anything like that. And then you also have a recipe that you can put in your back pocket. And th- this one I definitely will consider going to in the very near future because it was great. And so again, blueapron.com/realgm. You get your first three meals for free, including free shipping. And again, that's blueapron.com/realgm. I want to get into a little bit more. I, you already teed it up, and I missed. I went past it to talk about the Iguodala thing, but. The idea of moving forward, and I, the way that I'm thinking about this is Cleveland has a very low margin for error. They have to do a lot right in order to win, but they have the capability of doing that because of their individual talents and their approach. Yeah,
1: no, that's 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 a hundred. That's a hundred percent true. That's a hundred percent true, and it, it, you know, and it all. That's, that's what, that's what makes this all so fascinating now, right? Is that, is that this is how it's laid out. And now it's just a matter of, does it play out that way? And if it doesn't, you know, things are going to get really interesting.
2: So I hate to do percentages just because I want to do, but like, I think that Cleveland has a very legitimate chance of winning each game in Oracle. They've already done it. You know, they they won game five and seven last year. They've almost won other games in the series. They won game, I think it was game one, yeah, game one back in 20, no game two in 2015. They lost game one. That was the one when Kyrie got hurt. So I I'd ballpark it somewhere around like forty percent, so 40 percent that they win Game Five, and about the same, maybe even a little higher for Game Seven if it gets there.
1: Uh, I think that's way too high. Um, I, I would say it's more like fifteen or twenty percent. I I mean the Warriors, the Warriors have been a dominant team, you know, in in these playoffs, been a dominant team in this matchup at Oracle this year. They have won all three games by you know an average of, of well over twenty points. They won both games you know, in the first two games by 20 or 21 points. Uh, even though the Cavs were incredible in game four, they still scored 86 points and a half. and didn't really put the game away until late in the fourth quarter. Uh, so, you know, the Warriors still had 68 points in the first half. They still had 16 the Cavs' defense. Uh, so to me, if they're going to win game five, they're going to need a remarkable... Scoring performance again on the road, and I think the chances of them putting up a buck thirty, which is probably what they're going to need, you know, say they need a buck fifteen or more to win the game tomorrow. Uh, I think the chances of them doing that on the road, when their supporting cast has looked terrible away from Cleveland, I just think the chances of that are are far less than than the number you're putting them at. The greatness of of LeBron James uh, and and his you know Kyrie Irving notwithstanding.
2: The point about supporting cast is interesting to me because I think really what they need there is kind of non-disaster so like you think about what what iman shumpert has done in a couple of these games the series where just took too many shots and didn't make them that's a big problem The like the bad games that they've gotten from just kind of like darren williams i thought darren he was better in game four but he had been really struggled throughout and some of that i think has been adjusted by using richard jefferson more i think he's a good fit for this series and he provided nice energy but you're right that those guys, you know, if the Warriors can help off those guys, if they can leave them open and they're going to take bad shots and miss those, then that cuts the margin that Cleveland needs in order to win. And also the the other point that goes with the whole 86 and, the, and they still haven't put the Warriors away is the Warriors did not play well like this was it was not a circumstance where you know oh well hey their best is better than your best it was their best is really good and it was way better than a below average game for this team yeah
1: i mean i they they need they need their supporting cast to not just not screw up they need them to be really good i mean jare smith was great in game 4 tristan Thompson was Far better in game four than it had been. Kevin Love was great in game four. Uh, you know, Richard Jefferson was really good in game four. Like they, they need they need everybody playing at a ten, and the Warriors then need to play at like a seven. I mean, it the, the, that that's the kind of you know, Monta Ginobili said that during the East, the Western Conference Finals that they need to be at a ten and the Warriors need to be at a seven, and I think that was pretty accurate. I mean, they, they with the preponderance of talent they have on their roster. The, the truth of the matter is that the, the Golden State has a gigantic margin for error, and that's why they really need they really need the, to to really not play well, and then the Cavs need to really play well for them to have a chance. Because I mean, look, the Warriors still haven't played an A plus game in this series, or probably even an A game, and they're up three to one, and I, I think that just tells you how how far ahead they are in terms of talent. And that's why, to me, if they come home and play well in game five, I just think the margin for error for Cleveland is microscopic to try to win a game if, if Golden State plays well at home as they did the first two games of the series.
2: It's true. And we, we haven't seen the Warriors yet. I mean, we've seen them play some very good games, but you just think back to the way these series have gone. And I had a thought just now. I don't know why my brain went in this direction, but when you think about the idea of this potentially being, it's, it's a trilogy, but it might not be the last one of this run between these two teams. And I was thinking about that the one of the biggest moving pieces moving go as we go forward in this is the warrior centers. And as much as I've been critical of Kerr going to his centers too much except for David West, who I don't think he's playing enough. Though that group might be very different next year, and I think that it's worked out better. This group, the 2017 center collection, is better against Cleveland than the last group, but next year could be completely different too. It could be. I mean, I think you saw in Game 4 the Jabail experiment needs to stop. I mean,
1: that I I know people have enjoyed that this year, and, it, and it's been a fun little sideshow for the Warriors, but that's some of the stuff, especially where Steve Kerr, you know, needs to stop. And, you know, you guys have mentioned, I know you talked with Nate on the, the dunked on pod about how the Warriors have never played David West in the, the first and third quarters of games because they've stuck to this rotation. And, I mean, you saw when David West was in there, where the Warriors were far better than than the, the few minutes Javel played. And look, you know, people can, people can say what they want about the JaVale minutes. The bottom line is he came in when the game was within distance and, you know, they were, I think, minus seven or, or six or seven in the minutes he was in. And, you know, look that that wound up making a real difference in the game. And you know, it's that it's it. You know, you you've said this before. It's you know, it, the the whole forty eight minutes matter. It's not it's not just what happens in the second half or in the fourth quarter in the last six minutes. It's it's a buildup throughout the game. And. You know, that is that is some of the stuff where I'll be curious to see, you know, does Golden State go back and do exactly the same stuff in game five that they have done? Or do they they even make even if it's just smaller tweaks like, all right, this this Javale thing is done. Uh, You know, we're going to play Draymond at center more. Uh, You know, we'll 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 change things a little bit. Um, You know, is that is that the kind of stuff that they do or does or does Steve just, you know, stay exactly the way he's been and and not change anything at all? It'll It'll be really interesting and see how that goes.
2: To me, it goes down to the idea of constraints. So Kerr has this kind of idea of how he wants things to go, and if you treat certain elements of that as being set in stone, then the rest of it gets more complicated. So if you think Stephen Curry, and this is the one that I do think is fair to have as a constraint, if you think Stephen Curry has to play or that it's best for him to play all of the first and third and then come in at some point like you know four minutes into the fourth, fourth and second, okay you can then you do that but then the, when you add things on top of it then it gets more complicated and that's part of the reason why we haven't seen as much of the Draymond at center lineup and this was the same issue with Iguodala in the 2015 finals if you feel like you have to start with Pachulia at center well then you're going to get into all this complicated stuff and if you want McGee in at the end of the first quarter Cleveland's not playing a traditional center then JaVale McGee should not be in the game when Cleveland is not playing a traditional center so Lou has done a great job of basically saying hey we we will adjust this you know like go back to the idea of of LeBron's rest has bounced around at various points in the series depending on how he's played and how he hasn't. They found this they found this advantage at the beginning of the second quarter and a big part of it is because Kerr's staying pretty rigid with his rotations and Lou is pressing the advantage when he has these seams.
1: Yeah, no, you're totally right. I mean, look, when JaVale came in, who was he guarding? Richard Jefferson, right? Like that's that's a disaster for Golden State. Like he has he has his skills and he he's at moments where he's been effective, but but look, you're right. I mean, the Warriors are also it's all. They're also, the, the Warriors are excellent, and they're also, to your point about the conservatism, they're also very predictable. And, you know, you know exactly when JaVale's coming in. You can buy like, clockwork, just kind of go, all right, this is when this lineup's coming in, this one, this lineup's coming in. And t- I, think, I think you're right. I think Ty has done a really good job of saying, hey, JaVale's about to come in. Let's go small here. But, and, then, and then let's have him try to guard Richard Jefferson on the perimeter and get blown by for layups or be out of position for fouls or or, all, you know, just, just not, not be in the right spots. And, you know, that was a rough, that was a rough few minutes. And, and I'm not saying JaVale McGee is the reason they lost the game either, but, you know, the Cavs had it rolling, and the Warriors gave them more kindling to throw on the fire, right? Because if you're in a situation where you need to start getting stops, you don't bring in JaVale McGee to get stops. And I just think, and, and to your point, the Cavs have done a really good job of attacking the Warriors by, because they know exactly what's coming when it when it's coming. And I think if, if Golden State even switches that up just a little bit tomorrow, um, even if they don't play JaVale or they, they switch up their lineups a little bit, uh, I think that could really make a big
2: difference in Game 5. The poster child for this in this series is Ian Clark. Ian Clark has had a nice year once they figured out, the Warriors figured out the second unit rotation with him instead of Sean Livingston, who was ill-suited for that role being largely off-ball and more of a catch-and-shoot guy. That's just not what Livingston does. They went to Ian Clark. It worked really well. But you knew exactly when that lineup was going to come in, and all that Cleveland had to do to blow it up was put Kyrie Irving in, because Ian Clark cannot guard Kyrie Irving. And so Cleveland's offense basically became, during those minutes, get the ball to Kyrie, get Ian Clark on Kyrie, and then just get baskets. And... It's not that complicated, and Kerr deserves credit. This could be the harbinger here. He did move away from that in the fourth quarter, but it's that sort of approach. You know, they got three games out of it, and yes, the Warriors did win all three of those games, but it didn't make life easier on themselves. And we'll have to again, we'll have to see where it goes. And I, I think you've heard this before. We might have talked about it, but my the way that I would handle consider some of the some of the like just overall dynamics is changing up how long the guy who starts the first and third quarters at the. Face- basically the non-all-star guy, how long they play, because they can keep that spot with Pachelia if they want, but then instead of waiting, you know, six to eight minutes to pull him out, do it like four. Give him shorter bursts and then go to something different. Try a different look if it's not working. And that could be a it can be JaVale. I think JaVale in that lineup might actually work would work better than where they've been putting him so far. Of course Andre Godalla would work well work well there too. But that's not the Warriors M.O. They try to have consistency for a, a, a little bit more time more time at the beginning of each half. And Lou, I think he's been pretty cool with the team being less consistent in terms of who's on the floor because everybody's played with everyone at this point.
1: Yeah, I I actually disagree about James and Zaza's minutes because I think for the most part, he's done a really good job on Tristan Thompson. Uh, Tristan obviously played much better in game four, but Zaza is a, is a really good matchup for Tristan because he's... You know, they kind, of, they kind of do the same things. Tristan's obviously more athletic than Zaza, who really can't jump over a phone book, because I think Nate is fond of saying. But, uh, but but, he his energy level and his activity on the glass has, has done a nice job for most of the series of neutralizing Tristan, which really, I, I think for all the shots that the, the Cavs made early, I think Tristan's activity level really kind of created a lot of that. Um, him getting some offensive rebounds and just kind of flying around and doing the stuff that we thought he was going to do the whole series. But to me, I would play him. If you want to stick with West at the start of the second quarter, that's fine. And then I would just be playing small. I mean, that's, that's what I would do personally. I would I would try to you know I would I would try to go small there. Um, you know I would what I would maybe do is flip flop the Draymond and, and Durant minutes and have Durant. Durant come in at the start of the second quarter instead of Draymond. And if Draymond plays small there instead of McGee, right, the second half of the first quarter. When when Zaza comes out, just, just have Draymond slide over to center and just play small then. Um, and then have David West come in and, have, and then have Draymond come in and play small in the second quarter who comes back, right? Like, to me, it, I think that would be a much better allocation of Golden State's minutes. Than than having McGee come in and then having Draymond only play, uh, you know, playing you know at power forward most of the time instead of getting him a lot more minutes at center where he can really disrupt a lot of what Cleveland is doing.
2: You're right. I, I shouldn't have treated that the Draymond at center playing them fewer minutes as a constraint. I'm making my, I, I fell into my own trap, the one that I criticized Kerr for. And I think that you, you're right, that it's going in that way. And this is something I've talked about at other points in the series is that putting Draymond Green on Kevin Love really does him a disservice. Because that's not what Draymond does well. Because Love actually fills two different gaps that he has trouble with. One, of course, the three-point shooting. If, if you have to cover Love around the arc, whether it's in the corner or above the break, you have to keep an eye on him, you have to stay close. He's also good at attacking closeouts, and whether it's drawing BS fouls, or actually just driving on it and doing a couple of dribbles, and maybe shooting, taking a pass, whatever. He's better than almost every other guy who has his skill, who has his general attributes at that. But the second thing that he does, and this was how Draymond got, I think it was his fourth or his fifth foul in game three was love is really really good at getting a deep seal and draymond is the best defensive player in the league right now he's defensive player of the year or will be that is a weak point in his game is that he can get deep sealed by strong guys if they attack at the right moment so you can't he can't help as much and he can get victimized in that way and i actually think he's fouling more in his current defensive spot than if he were playing center
1: yeah i think you can make a good good uh, i think that's a good point i mean i think kevin love because of the, the role he's in and the, the team he's on now, I think he's actually become a very underrated player. Um, I, I, you know, obviously he has some issues with the way the NBA is going in terms of his ability to switch on defense and, and some of the, the limitations he has there. But look, this guy was, this guy averaged 25 and 15 for a reason, right? I mean, he, he can play and he's a really good, uh, he's a, he's a great three point shooter. He, he's, he's really, really good in the post. Like you said, he's good at kinda, you know, hooking a guy's arm, making it look like he grabbed him. He's good at getting this, getting those deep seals and getting easy buckets and drawing fouls and um it is a tough matchup for Draymond. And I think you know, I think Draymond's done a pretty good job on it for the most part. But, you know, that's why I think to your point, if you could if you could if you could get him at more center minutes and you know, then you're you're both not playing Javale, which I as you know, I think is a plus, and you're also um you also are getting him in a position where he can Come over and maybe double team, and then get back on a on a love post up, or if a LeBron post up happens, or you know he can recover, help and recover on a Kyrie drive. I mean, it, it does kind of allow him to to use some of his preternatural uh, instincts as a help defender to wreak a lot more havoc than he's been able to so far in the series.
2: The other adjustment that. Kerr should be open to in that way is having a base alignment where somebody smaller is on Love. Yes, there will be times that he bullies that player in the post, but I think that you can double if you need to. Love is a very good passer. I think you can handle that if that's your structural weak point. And I would go so far as to use somebody like Sean Livingston. Livingston is small. He's you know he's in height and he's also much thinner than Kevin Love, who's you know a big dude even though he's thinned out over the years. And I think that what basically the idea is what you concede and what you don't concede. And I think that can work better. The other way that I would do that is Iguadala, I think having Iguadala on love is a very intriguing thing because then if they're setting certain screens, then you can, you know, Iguodala is more, he's capable of switching. You can also just get a hand in there and just mess things up. And then you, or you can just put, put Iguodala on, on LeBron and then put Durant there. You can do a lot of different things, but putting Draymond on basically whoever the other team's worst three-point shooter is. And that's Tristan, if he's in that's, you know, depending on different guys, I think that opens him up. And the crazy thing is that's what Cleveland has done with LeBron and they just need to use use that as the model, not religiously because LeBron's guarded Durant a fair amount, but I think that helps unlock what LeBron does well.
1: Yeah, no, I, I think you're, I think you're right. I mean, I, and, and look, I mean the Warriors can still easily win game five playing the exact same way they have been. And I, you know, I think the first two games of the series, especially in Oakland saw that, but you know, I, I would, I would certainly think that if tomorrow's game starts to, you know, become a real dogfight, I, I, you know, you would think that that's that'll be the time when Steve will start trying some things up and, and doing some different things. But you, but, you know, as we said earlier, that's not something he likes to do. And it, it, it's going to be a really interesting subplot of game five to see, you know, what, you know, if anything, Golden State likes to do, tries to do a little differently to, to, you know, to finally get over the finish line here and and get this second
2: title. Before we transition to uh, another, there's another little thing I want to talk with you about. Is there anything else on the finals that you feel like we haven't discussed? I think we've gone pretty deep into it. Uh, Yeah, I'm
1: talked out on the finals, frankly. I'm, you know, I, I'm glad, I'm glad that, Game three and four were competitive, and, you know, if game five is competitive, that'll be good, too. But I really do just think that, you know, I think you saw, you know, Cleveland played as well as it possibly could in game four and still didn't put the game away until late, and I just feel like the Warriors are going to come home and, and finish this off in five and, and get, be done with it. But, you know, we'll, we'll see what happens tomorrow. It should be fun.
2: Yeah, it should be. So as Tim and I transition from talking about the two best teams in the league to free agency and these teams trying and other teams trying to add to what they have, it's also a great time to talk about ZipRecruiter, which is the way that your team, your business can add free agents to your roster. And ZipRecruiter is great because you don't have to worry about trying to find your job and posting it all over the internet. It can be really hard to find good people. And with ZipRecruiter, it posts on all the top job sites, 100 plus job sites with just one click. And not only that, but their technology matches the right people with your position. And eighty per, over 80% of jobs posted on ZipRecruiter get a qualified candidate within 24 hours, which is fantastic. And also something that a lot of other services don't use, and this is something that kind of affects employers and employees at the same point, but really employers more, is that it can be hard to filter through the responses you get. I mean, one of the benefits now in the hiring world is that you're often getting a lot of applications for the same position. And so using ZipRecruiter's platform, their dashboard, you can screen, rate, and manage candidates all in one place. You don't have to worry about doing that separately or using some other system or a bunch of notes or something else. You can do it through ZipRecruiter itself. And you can try it out. You go to ZipRecruiter.com sportsfan, S-P-O-R-T-S-F-A-N, and you can post jobs for free. You can check it out. And... And it's a really impressive platform. I personally have experienced it as an employee, not as an employer, but I fully believe that it can go that way. I don't have to hire any employees. I'm an independent contractor, but I know the importance of that. And I used it as a way of working, to try to get a job back when I was in a different sector of employment. Let's put it that way. But ZipRecruiter.com slash sports fan. You can post jobs for free and check out their amazing platform. So where I wanted to change directions, because you and I haven't talked about it, at least on a podcast, I don't know if we've actually talked about this personally at all, is the Celtics are... Basically, the the Leviathan of this offseason, considering we expect the Warriors to kind of keep things together. You know, obviously, if Durant leaves or something crazy like that, they become a big factor. But let's assume that all, all stays form. How did what happened in the conference finals or did it change the way if, you, if Danny Ainge called you and asked for your advice, the way that you would think about where they should go from here?
1: I don't think it changed anything. Uh, I mean, I, I thought the Celtics kind of had a charmed life getting that far. I mean, they, they, I think they would have lost to the Bulls if Rajon Rondo hadn't gotten hurt. I, I think you can argue that, you know, Washington, you know, kicked away the first two games of that series in Boston. And then, you know, really, you know, Kelly Olenek had the game of his life in game seven to kind of make sure they won game seven. I mean, it, it it was, it was, it was not the most convincing run to the conference finals. And then they got obliterated by the Cavs, as you'd expect. I mean, you know, I, I think, you know, it's, it, To me, Boston really needs to get a Gordon Hayward type to sign with them this summer because I I think if they don't, I think they could be in a situation where they could really be screwed, Uh, which I know sounds weird given all the assets they have, but to me, if they start pouring money into guys like Marcus Smart, Avery Bradley, and Isaiah Thomas uh, on long-term big-money contracts... I think the, the long-term outcome of that is going to be very bad for the Celtics. And so, you know, if they could get a guy like Hayward and they can, they could start to, um, they could start to shift things around a little bit. Uh, I think that would, you know, allow them to kind of, you know, keep, keep on this trajectory while also maintaining some flexibility moving forward in terms of, you know, whether they decide to move on from a guy like Isaiah in a year when he's a free agent or, you know, maybe trade a guy like Bradley to get another piece and stuff like that. You know, I think if they don't if they don't get a big piece like that this summer, I think all of a sudden, you know, the calculus for how they decide to play out there, how they decide to let free agency play out and, and where they decide to allocate their resources becomes a lot more complicated.
2: That's all fair. It changed the way that I thought about it for the simple point that I think they're a little bit further away from being in the mix with not not specifically Cleveland because I think, you know, Cleveland's its own thing, but also the Warriors. And I mean, I think that if you're going for win now, you're going for win now with the idea of being the best or the second best team in the league and ideally close enough to the best team where if you're if you're second that you have a fighting chance and probably better than a fighting chance. So what I was thinking about during that series was Yes, Isaiah was limited, and then he ended up missing the later games in the series. But their best-case win-now scenario that's within the realm of realism is Gordon Hayward and then either... Jimmy Butler or Paul George that team is really really good they're a phenomenal talent like you have a balance presumably if you're getting either one of them you're giving up both some present assets whether that's Avery Bradley or Jay Crowder or and future assets probably the 2018 Nets pick so my thought was well where would that team theoretically fall in with everything and I think my instinct is they would be similar around in line with Cleveland and worse than the Warriors and that's not a bad place to be but if that that's your best case scenario. I'm not sure that going full bore after it, and of course it might not be their choice, but I'm not sure going full bore after it is the right tactic because they have this crazy allocation of future assets where they can be more patient if they want.
1: Yeah, I, I've never really been that high in them all year. I, I, you know, I, I don't think they're very close at all. Um, I, I think Isaiah Thomas is a, a, a player that allows you to get to a certain level and then you can't really get beyond it because he's hopelessly, He's a hopelessly bad defender um, who also needs to have the ball in his hands a lot. Uh, he can't play off the ball, but he, he's obviously going to be a ball dominant guy and, and control control out of your offense. And so I think that that combination just really limits, I think what your ceiling is. Uh, whereas I think if you look at, um, if you look at their overall picture, right, they just, they just don't have a lot of talent. They have a lot of okay players and solid players, but they don't have a lot of high-end players. And, you know, I I think, you know, if Isaiah Thomas is your, say you get Paul George and Gordon Hayward, right? If Isaiah Thomas is your third scorer, he's not nearly as effective to me as if he's your leading scorer because then that really makes his it kind of, that uh, balancing act with his defensive issues uh, really starts to get out of whack. Um, so you know, I think Boston has a lot of questions to answer. Like I said, I think if they if they can get Gordon Hayward this summer, like I know some people are confident they can get him, uh, then you know all of a sudden things start to change, right? Then you've got an All Star on your team, you've got Al Horford, you you you've got kind of a foundation. You still have you know you probably have Markel Fultz to go with Jalen Brown. I like both of those guys. You know, so you've got so you got an interesting mix there, even if you're not that close. But if they don't get pay work, and all they've got is an aging Al Horford and uh, Isaiah Thomas, they have to decide how much to pay, and an Avery Bradley they have to decide how much to pay, and a Marcus Smart is going to be a restricted free agent, and I mean all of a sudden you start to put those pieces together, it, it just doesn't it just doesn't look like a group that I can I can look at and say that that team is really set to go anywhere, and I, and I think instead, you're in a position where you either have to bite the bullet and pay Isaiah Thomas to keep everybody in Boston happy, which I think is going to be immediately become a disastrous contract, or you let him go, and then you are shifting to kind of a full rebuild, where you hope that you get another high Brooklyn pick, and you've got Brown and Fultz and uh, whatever Brooklyn pick you get next year, plus whatever you get for Thomas and like you, you kind of just go the other way. So that's why to me, they're in such an interesting spot this summer, because I think to me, if I was them, like you asked me at the beginning, what would I do if, if Danny Ainge called me? I would say, if you can't get a guy like Gordon Hayward this summer, or maybe even a guy like Blake Griffin, even though he would be kind of an interesting, kind of an odd fit there. If you can't get a star level guy to give that money to, I would blow it up and I would go try to rebuild with these young pieces you have. And you know, maybe try to get two top five picks. Like maybe just we're not going to be we're going to take a big step back. We're not going to be that good next year, and we try to get two top picks and and really really go all in with this young core and do it that way. Um, I, I think I think you got to kind of go that direction because I think if you try to pay some of these guys they have now the money they're going to need to stick around, I think you're just putting yourself in the kind of position the Celtics have been very painstakingly trying to avoid the last few years now.
2: I certainly agree with, with just about all of that. And Isaiah's next contract is, you know, assuming he so- seeks and receives full market value, is going to be incredibly high because somebody's going to throw money at him. That's just the way Remember, works.
1: remember, 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 Isaiah Thomas said, quote, they're going to have to back the Brinks truck up. Yeah. I mean, this is a guy who's never made any money really in his career. He got one contract for, I think, 26 or $28 million. He was on the minimum the first three years for that. He's barely... By the end of this, this contract, he'll barely made thirty million dollars in his career. So this is not a guy that you know is like say like Kevin Durant, right? Who's coming off of a massive contract and has a three hundred million dollars shoe deal. And if he if he decides to take three or four less million off his max with so Andre Godal and John Livingston to get paid, uh, it's not much of a haircut, right? Whereas if you're Isaiah Thomas, are you taking uh, are you taking you know less than the max if he has another All Star season next year? I doubt it. You know, like that, that's the time where he says, look, I'm 28, 29. This is my chance to set up, you know, multiple generations of my family is that you gotta, you gotta back the truck up and, and give me my money. So uh, you know, I don't. I'd be surprised. I'd be I'd be stunned if you know he remains in Boston on some kind of a discount deal.
2: And that's going to be one of the stories of the next couple of years. Is that you know the, we've had this time due to the cap spike where players have not had to make hard choices. And Gordon Hayward might be one of the few who who has this. Either way, you could say you know the Jazz it's a, it's a wonderful situation. They can pay him a lot of money. Boston's a wonderful situation. They can pay him a lot of money. Once Boston and the Warriors are now like kind of out of it, I think it's going to be a little while unless the Sixers hit on everything for a player to have that sort of thing. So for Paul Millsap, for maybe Serge Ibaka, for some of these other guys, the rubber is going to have to meet the road somewhere. And I think the best representation of this is Chris Paul. Chris Paul is going to have to make a very different decision. He's not going to get everything he wants. He can stay where he likes to live, but he's not going to be on a championship contender. He's not going to get everything he wants, and what he prioritizes is going to be not only important for him and for the Clippers, but for the entire league. Yeah, it's very
1: true. I mean, and to me, I don't see him I don't see him going anywhere. I know there's some conjecture about the Spurs but I mean you gotta people have to remember Chris Paul wrote into the CBA uh the ability for himself to get a five-year max contract so uh unless the Clippers just decide they're not paying him which I would be awfully surprised if that was the case uh then I just I just can't see any of that happening anywhere and he's gonna take his massive deal and he's gonna be you know living in LA and and living the good life
2: and who knows maybe in a year or two he can get some of the other banana boat guys there
1: yeah i mean you know that that will be that will be really interesting to see how that plays out um, you know that you know there was some talk this week about lebron obviously going to la and you know that that talk frankly has been out there for 10 years now that he's going to go to la at some point yep. he hasn't yet uh, and i think you know i, I think you know we will wrap up with this i think cuz i got to go actually write my articles for tomorrow Uh, I think when you when you try to analyze what LeBron James is going to do, stop paying attention to like, oh, he wants to go live in L.A. because he has a big house there like that. That's not that's nonsense. LeBron LeBron wants to win. And he has shown both in going to Miami the first time and going back to Cleveland the second time. What was the the theme that ran through both of those decisions? He made decisions based on where he could go win the most. And. He went to a Cavs team. He went to a Heat team in the first place that had two elite players to play with him, and he had a chance to win multiple championships, which he did. And then he went to Cleveland, where they had Kyrie Irving and get Kevin Love, who were younger, uh, excellent players who, who, were, who gave him a chance to win longer than Dwayne Wade and Chris Bosh would. And he was right about that. So whatever LeBron does next summer when he becomes a free agent, I believe, personally, it should be looked at through the prism of, what is the situation that's going to allow me the best chance to win championships? And, you know, maybe he just keeps signing one-year deals at Cleveland for a while. Uh, maybe he signs long-term in Cleveland, just stays there. Maybe he decides to go to, uh, say, a Clipper team with Chris Paul, DeAndre Jordan, and Paul George. Like, that's a team that could maybe be a championship team. Uh, the one thing I don't see right now is LeBron signing up to go play with a Laker team that's won 25 games that has a bunch of guys who are 20 on it. Like, I, that just, to me... Uh, I just don't see even if they go and even if they went and got Paul George to play with him there uh, and somehow got rid of uh, the Dang and Moscow contracts and didn't have to get rid of all of their other young talent to do so, which they probably would. I, I just don't see how that Laker team is going to be better than the Cavs team he's on. And I, I think that, for everybody who wants to try to decide what LeBron's next move is, I think that's the prism you have to look at it through. is it, What is his best chance to win and win a lot? Because may, you know, maybe when he's 40, he'll want to play with the Banana Ball crew or go play with his kid if his kid is as good as everybody thinks he can be. But To me, I cannot see LeBron James at 33 saying, you know what, this has been fun. I'm now going to go play in L.A. because I feel like it because it'd be good for my movie career or my movie production studio or my, you know, my the, the uninterrupted stuff I'm doing. It just isn't. LeBron is too way too competitive and way too worried about his long term legacy, I think, to go you know, turn his career into the back nine when he's still probably going to be somewhere close to the peak of his powers at that
2: point. And that last point is very important, which is that he's way too good for that. You you can, you know, if you're waning, if your power is getting to that point, then that's something very different than... If somebody.
1: he was... If he was a, if if he was Dwayne Wade last year when Dwayne Wade was a free agent, then maybe I could see that, right? Like, if he was, like, a good – like, still a, a, you know, borderline All-Star. Wade was – you know, Wade was better, obviously, in Miami than in Cleveland. But he was still really, – he was great in the playoffs. But if he was like, you know what? I've had a great run. I'm kind of at the end of the line. Let me go play with the banana boat crew or whatever. I – I think then you could look at it and go, all right, like I could see it. But if LeBron has another year this next year, like he did this year, I, I just I just can't see him. I can't see him signing up for a team that isn't going to have a chance to be at the very top of the sport because that's where he's been for a decade now, and I, I just don't see him ready to give up on that.
2: And along those lines, the last point that I want to see is who of the Bananabo crew, and we'll exclude that the Miami guys all took a little bit less in 2010 to play together. Who is the next one of them to take a pay cut? And why do they take a pay cut? Because right now we haven't seen that. We haven't seen Melo take less money. He got his full, he got, I mean, he took a little less, but you know, like a real discount, got that no trade clause. LeBron, you know, he's gotten paid awfully close to his full max. Chris Paul has has gotten his. Wade, you know, I, I think Wade got as rich a contract as he would have realistically expected from almost anywhere. So they, they're they entitled to do that. I will never criticize players for, do, for, for choosing that. But when somebody of that group tra- takes a pay cut, I assume it'll be to play with one of the other guys, but who knows? And that could end up shifting the power dynamic a little bit. But I also think that other than, you know, two of those four guys are getting too old to really make the waves that they would have if that had happened a couple years ago.
1: Yeah, I I mean, I think Wade is is well past it at this point, but I'll tell you what. I mean, the guy that's going to be interesting next summer to me is Carmelo, because Carmelo, I think, is still really, really good. Um, He still can score, and I think if you put him in the right role, um, you know, he's going to have to take a pay cut next year anyway. And, like, let's say Carmelo was willing to go be a, say, a sixth man for a Clipper team with LeBron and Chris Paul. And, uh, like, let's say they somehow get – Paul George and LeBron to go to the Clippers, right? Like, let's say Blake, let's just play hot potato. Let's say Blake leaves. Let's say they, like, kind of like I think we've talked about, they kind of plan to make a big run at forage next summer, right? Let's say they get those two guys on their team. And then what if, you know, what if Carmelo, like, decides to take the mid-level for a couple of years to be their sixth man? Like, you put him in a role like that, where he could come off the bench and score against second units, he could be terrifying, even though he is going to be 33 or 34 at that point. Um, you know, a kind of like a, a, souped up version of what Joe Johnson was for Utah this year. Right. Uh Like that, that to me would be really, really interesting if he's willing to do something like that. Now we'll see if he is or not, but yeah, I think by next summer, given how Wade's season went this year, he's going to be looking like a guy that's probably, you know, going to be not exactly the most sought after player and, and isn't going to be chasing big money, especially now that the cap is flattened out. We don't have the same kind of spikes and free money we did last year, but um, you know, Carmelo is a guy that, you know, I really think could be an interesting piece next summer, and if he does decide to go team up with, say, LeBron somewhere else or, or do something like that, you know, things could get really interesting. So, um, that, that whole crew is going to be interesting to see what happens next summer, and, and you know, the, the 2018 class with, you know, probably Wade and Marcus Aldridge and Carmelo and LeBron and Paul George, uh, you know, DeMarcus Cousins. I mean, there's a lot of big names. DeAndre Jordan is a free agent. There are a lot of big names that are going to be on the market now. Next summer, Uh, And it it will be really, really interesting to see where all those guys decide to go and and what they wind up doing.
2: And a lot of big names that are looking like they're going to be open to changing their zip code, which is very interesting. And that hasn't happened in a little while.
1: Yeah, that's also true, too. I mean, you could see everybody stay put, but, you know, there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of there's a lot of stuff going on uh, between now and uh, between now and then. And it's going to be, you know, as we know, the the uh, the transactional stuff never stops. So it's going to be it's going to be really interesting.
2: Absolutely. Thank you so much for taking the time. Anytime, Danny. Happy to do it thanks again to Tim Bontemps for taking the time to come on. You can read him of course at the Washington post and you can listen to his posting up podcast and you can read him on Twitter or you can follow him on Twitter at Tim Bontemps, T I M B O N T E M P S love talking with him and really enjoyed the conversation. This kind of came up a little bit spur of the moment. We talked a little bit last night and thought, Hey, we can do a podcast about this. And, And it definitely, I was very happy with where it turned out and this is a a fascinating time. I mean, there was this little moment where we thought, oh, we're going to get a real couple weeks of break before the NBA draft and everything else like that. And, you know, that'll that'll kick in at some point, but it's still going to be a little bit of time until we know exactly what happens in the finals, though most of you will probably be listening to this on Monday, so there'll be less time. But we'll see where that goes. Lots of exciting stuff to talk about. And also, you can check out my written work. I have off-season previews for all 30 NBA teams coming up on SI. I think the publishing is about halfway through, but I am very close to having the first draft of them all written, which is exciting for me because that opens up some time to work on the CBA Encyclopedia, which is a project that I do for Real GM. That's going to come back in earnest this week. I'm working on a couple different projects and have some other people as well that are going to be putting up new materials that's in, meant to be more, of, as it says, the CBA Encyclopedia. So it's in-depth pieces explaining specific topics. And so I don't know exactly which ones are coming out at which point, but the goal is to have a much more fleshed out version of what I'm already very happy with for July 1st. And so that's kind of the new push. And then there'll be some updating. And also I'm going going to go back through and adjust some of those based on the new collective bargaining agreement, which is a good impetus for me to actually get my act together. And I've gone through it pretty cursory, uh, on a cursory way at this point, but I need to go through it more. And so it'll be a nice motivator to make sure that that happens and you can check out the great work that everybody else is doing. And then you can also listen to dunked on Nate and I going game by game through it, through the NBA finals and then off season previews. We did the Lakers on tonight's podcast. So that's one of the big ones. And we talked about Frank Tilkina, interesting combo guard out of Frank. He's fr- plays on the French national team and played in Strasbourg. And so lots going on there. And then you can read my work also at The Athletic. That's where my Warriors and slash NBA finals content is coming out. So lots, lots going on as always, and not exactly sure where the podcast will go next week. I think it really depends on what happens in the NBA finals. You know, it could be a retrospective on the Warriors could be just, you know, this remarkable series. Maybe it's still Going, who knows so that'll be exciting to to talk about if you want to send any feedback, good, bad, or indifferent, danielerumba at gmail.com, at danieleru on Twitter. If you take the time to write it, I will take the time to read it. I do not promise I will respond because I often don't have the time. And if you want to support the show, there are a lot of great ways you can do it. You can leave a rating, leave a review in the podcast player your choosing. You can subscribe, you can download every episode because that really helps our numbers and numbers matter to advertisers. And that's the other massive, massive way you can help out this show and any other is to check out our sponsors. So for this episode, that is ZipRecruiter. Great way to find... Find your next employee, ziprecruiter.com slash sports fan. You can post jobs for free and that going to buy that URL tells them that you came from us. Again, that's ziprecruiter.com slash sports fan and then Blue Apron food delivery service extraordinaire and blueapron.com slash real GM. You get three meals for free, including free shipping on your first order. So we'll be back at some point next week probably sooner than that, considering I don't usually put these out on Sunday night for the prior week, but that's just the way this worked out. Going a cool direction. Don't know what it's going to be yet. So thank you so much for listening. Take care and make it a great day.
0: If you're struggling with alcohol or drugs recovery centers of america can help the holidays are over the new year is here and the time to act is now expert private care at recovery centers of america will get you on the road to recovery today so call 1-888-RECOVERY now at our fully accredited world-class treatment center in monroeville pennsylvania you will be treated with compassion dignity and respect by our dedicated team of professionals Call one recovery now. That's one recovery And we're back. Well, tax season's here, folks, and you know... Hi there. Whoa, where'd you come from? April here to
1: tell you about the tax filing software from TaxAct.
0: Uh, seriously, were you like hiding behind my desk?
1: Seriously. TaxAct makes it easy to get your maximum refund.
0: Well, you heard it here first,
1: folks. Switch to TaxAct today and you can start for free.
0: Or as we say in Radioland. <laughs>
2: Subtle.
1: <laughs> Subtle. <laughs> TaxAct. Tax Act. File for less and get more. See TaxAct.com for details.